You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. Happy Monday. Thank you for joining me for tonight's teaching. And I'm glad you're here. We have finally arrived at the fourth and final installment of my teaching series on biblical justice. I know it's been a minute since we did part three. I actually looked back at my notes and it was all the way back on August the 25th. But I've just been super busy with travel and the UP conference last four weeks so this is literally the first chance I've had to do the stream, but we're here finally. Yay. And so if you're watching this live, do pray for me. I'm not feeling very well today. I'm not really sure what's going on, um, but I didn't want to postpone the stream again. So I'm going to try to get through it. So as you're watching, pray for me, uh, pray for healing for me. Got a big week ahead. Anyways, as always, I really do hope that you're finding these teachings helpful in your own journey of understanding justice and that you will share them with friends and family, your pastor, your children, and that you will integrate these principles into your everyday conversations, particularly your discipleship conversations with your kids. Uh, God has made some of our children to be passionate about justice. And to be passionate about justice is to have a desire that reflects the very character of God. That's a good thing. But it will be vital to teach our children how to be obedient to all of Jesus's commands so they won't be deceived by the world's definition of justice, which is something we're going to continue to talk about tonight. And I have entitled this fourth and final installment of this teaching series, God's Roadmap for a More Just Society. And I will be discussing the relationship between the gospel and justice, and why we need both uh, in order to transform the culture and to understand what each of these things does. Each of them has their own job that they need to do. Just as we don't want to change a tire with a hammer, we, we want to have the right tool for the job. We want to understand what the role of the gospel is and what its relationship is to justice. Let's get into it here and start by doing a quick review of a few key points from our previous discussion, since it has been a few weeks since our part three. And I won't have any slides for this part of it on the review, but um, just to hit a couple of foundational points. Now, the most foundational thing that we said is that we must understand that uh, a biblical definition of justice flows out of the very character of God. Justice cannot be separated from God's holiness or his love or his omnipotence or any of his other attributes. God is the very standard of justice. So if we want to know where justice comes from, we need to look first and foremost as God's character, because that is the standard. And because God is just, he wants his people to reflect his character and act in ways that are righteous and just too. So when we are living, we want to be shaping our lives according to God's character. We are becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And as God's people, we ought to be way ahead of the culture when it comes to a discussion about justice, because we have the insider information from the source of justice itself, the creator of the universe, the divine law giver. But as we noted in the very first episode of this series, each culture defines justice in their own way. And so Christians should be, as we are tethered to scripture, which is um, offers these transcultural universal principles of God's justice, we ought to be the voice that offers outside correction to the culture. We should be the voice of dissent in a way. If the church's concept of justice looks nearly identical to the majority culture, then something has likely gone dreadfully wrong. The church 
has compromised their view of the Bible more than likely. And the faithful church, faithful Christians need to be offering a voice that usually will sound different than the culture as it is biblically faithful. But more on this point later in the teaching. We want to give a brief definition of biblical justice. We've been using the definition from Dr. Cal Beisner, rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his due in accordance with the righteous standard of God's moral law. We also expounded extensively on the differences between law and gospel, which we're going to touch on again tonight. And we defined the gospel as what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done for us to make a way for us to come into a covenant relationship with God. And then we proclaim that good news, that is the gospel, that Jesus is ruling and reigning and that all authority has been given to him. And now we go into all the earth and we preach that good news. The law is what God tells us in terms of how to love God and how to love our neighbors. Love for neighbor is not the gospel, but it is an expression of God's law. So if we want to know the specifics of how God wants us to live a righteous life, how to live a just life, what his justice standard looks like, then we need to look at the details of the law. Okay, now with all of those little reminders in place, we're going to build on that and we're going to look at God's roadmap to a more just society. And really the big question we are asking here is, what is the relationship between the gospel and justice? Now, if I'm honest, I think that this is one of the most misunderstood concepts among Christians right now. Even many Christian pastors and leaders are confused about how to answer this very important question. Now, I'm really not sure why. It's very plain if you read the catechisms, the historic statements of our faith that we used to use to train new converts and disciple our children. But for whatever reason, we are very mixed up about this right now. So I'm hoping that maybe I can offer a little bit of clarity. So the first problem that I see is that we are misdefining the problem. We enter into this false dichotomy um, about justice, and we end up saying things like this. Justice is for liberals. We need to focus on just preaching the gospel. gospel or Justice is part of cultural Marxism. I see these kinds of statements all the time on social media. And and I think that this is part of misdefining the problem. We have some, for some reason, distanced ourselves from justice. And so I read well-meaning conservatives say things like this a lot. In fact, it often looks like this comment um, that I'm going to address uh, later in the, in the cast But um, this was made by a conservative person. It says, I never understood progressives idea of Jesus and social justice. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. How do they circle around that? And there's just kind of this attitude on the part of many conservatives that justice is not a conversation that's worth having, that somehow it's not biblical It's not something we ought to be doing. And I think that that misdefines the issue. It it really misses the point. But on the other side of the conversation is our well-meaning Christian friends who will just keep quoting Micah 6.8. They just keep quoting it over and over again. Uh, Do justice, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly, as if this is in totality a, a summary of our faith. No, this is just the law. This is our humble obedience, uh, our response to the gospel. But there is more to our faith than just this. And and it gets painted into almost this this religion of works. 
um, where we're just always working to do justice. And we read things like this on social media from Union Seminary. It says social justice is not extra. Social justice is the gospel. And this, again, it misdefines the problem. And um, it's that leads us really into the next issue right away, which is misdefining the standard. (laughs) Because when I'm talking to somebody, I can quickly realize that they do not have a firm grip on the difference between the gospel and justice when they misdefine the standard for justice itself, especially when how they talk about what justice is sounds nearly the same as what the world is telling me about justice. So here's a little of of what that looks like. Social justice says things like this. It talks about economic justice. And usually this is about redistribution of resources. It talks about things like reproductive justice, which is a euphemism for abortion as a human right. In fact, there's a lot of conversation right now about how do we bring abortion to Africa? Uh, We did a whole podcast on that a couple of years ago. Um, We're hearing a lot in our our, uh, culture right now about a marriage equality as a justice issue. Gay marriage is an issue of equal rights. Gender justice, affirming someone's preferred pronouns, um, advocating for trans women Uh, to participate in women's sports. These are all things that are flying under the banner of social justice right now from a cultural point of view. Now, when we get to the Bible, we read, for example, in Romans chapter 13, we read this, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Notice the close connection between love and law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be. Again, notice the connection between love, law, and command. These are all very closely affiliated. They're all kind of in the same bucket. In other words, whatever other commands, whatever laws there might be, in addition to these the short list. They are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. uh, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So we do not have the freedom to redefine love. (laughs) Love and law, law is the explanation of God's definition of love. Okay, so um, yes, love is patient and kind and And keeps no record of wrongs and all of those things. But all of those things that we read about in 1 Corinthians 13 are rooted and grounded and expressed in the transcultural principles of the moral law that we read throughout the scripture. So when we think about social justice and what our culture is telling us justice is, and we look at the other side of the ledger about biblical justice, we see things like this. The Bible tells me how we love. Well, if I'm thinking about economic justice, well, we were told last summer looting is just really an expression of people who are in pain. Well, from the Bible's perspective, looting breaks God's law regarding stealing and private property. The culture wants me to advocate for reproductive justice. The problem is the Bible defines how I love my neighbor And part of the the neighbor that is the most vulnerable to me is the unborn. And abortion violates God's law against murder. Marriage equality says I should advocate for gay marriage, but the Bible defines love as as being marriages between one, one man and one woman. Social justice tells me about trans justice. Biblical justice says that The way that I love is that I am understanding that humans are created either male or female. So if we're not careful in our definitions 
of justice, according to the Bible, defining how I love my neighbor, according to the Bible, I can very easily just slip right into the stream of the culture that's telling me how to love my neighbor. And then I will end up advocating for things that actually violate God's law. Okay. So I'm hoping that this, this helps um, to clarify this important distinction a little bit more. Let me give one more example of how these errors show up in everyday life. I always know that a person that I'm talking to, again, does not have a firm grip on the difference between the gospel and justice. When they label kind of oddball, random things a gospel issue, um, I see this error all the time from allegedly, allegedly conservative Christian entities, entities that should know better, entities that have a lot of initials um, after the names of their writers. People have been to seminary. They should know better. But they say things like wearing masks and getting vaccines are gospel issues because we should love our neighbor. Now, I realize I'm just one gal over here on a tiny YouTube channel in a small corner of the Internet. I'm not part of the big Eva machine with all the money and the approved voices. But I would like to point out that this is a category fallacy because it collapses law and gospel into being the same thing. And they're not. Law and gospel are two different things. They're, they're related, but they're different. And as I have said repeatedly throughout this series, loving my neighbor is not the gospel. It's the law. So when you're telling me that mask wearing is connected to the gospel, I have to say, no, it's not. Now, it might be on the side of the ledger of justice. It might be a justice question. It might be related to helping me love my neighbor. Okay, we can have that conversation. But I'm, I'm going to have to make, I'm going to have to ask that person to make some kind of principled case based on God's moral law before I can say, oh, yes, this conforms to God's moral law. But what we cannot do is just wave a magic wand and say, everything's a gospel issue because it's not. So in circling back to a point that I made earlier in this teaching series, the standard of justice can vary from culture to culture. And this is why it is absolutely vital for Christians to have moral clarity about what God calls just and unjust. It is always a big red flag for me. When I hear Christian preachers and, and leaders talking about justice in a way that basically is a mere reflection of what non-Christians are saying. When I hear these people basically sprinkling some Bible verses on top of secular ideas, my immediate thought is something has gone dreadfully wrong in this person's theological health. They're, they're, they're not healthy. Um, now, I think that there's also a component that happens where I'm going to call them social justice or more progressive oriented pastors think that conservative Christians actually don't care anything about justice, that they're just apathetic and they'll heap all kinds of guilt on biblically faithful Christians telling them that they're just apathetic about justice. And I'm really not sure that that's true. I think that that's, kind of an ad hominem against Christians that are just trying to be biblically faithful. I think that what a lot of Bible-believing Christians are concerned about is about baptizing justice um, with secular ideas. They, they, they want to get, they're willing to get behind a distinctly biblical concept of justice, but they're hesitant because if the person, all they're doing is quoting Micah 6, 8 or, you know, verses from Isaiah and other prophets, the biblically faithful Christian is sitting there in the pew silently thinking, yeah, but what do you mean by that? And why does your version of justice really just sound like a near mirror image of progressive politics? Um, I think many biblically faithful Christians are looking in vain a lot of times for the voices of Big Eva to to bring forward a distinctly biblical vision of justice and how to live that out. 
Um, so I think that there's a number of, of concerns that happen there as we get into these very muddy waters and we don't carefully differentiate between the gospel and justice and the law and how the law defines love. These are all very critical terms that we have to be very clear about. Um, otherwise, it just it turns into a mess very quickly. Now we're going to go to kind of the second movement of the teaching. And we're going to look at our second question is, um, what is the biblical plan for changing large scale institutions and systems? How do we begin to tackle um, systems of injustice? And really what we're asking in this question is how do the gospel and justice work together, each doing its own job. So I'm going to start the conversation by taking us back again, once more to Matthew 28. Now I know that the great commission might seem like a little bit of a weird verse to keep talking about in a teaching series on justice, but to me, it's a good grounding verse that presents in outline form, the relationship between the gospel and justice. So let's look at this. It says, and Jesus came and said to them, this is right after the resurrection of Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, remember, we've been saying the gospel is what God has done for us. Our response to him is to follow him in baptism, which is what this talks about, and obeying all of his commands and teaching others, like our children, to obey all of his commands. And that's where God's moral law comes in. So when you see there to make disciples and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, I want you to think in your mind, oh, she's talking about, or Jesus is talking about loving God and loving our neighbor. How do we do that? We unpack that 10 commandments, and then we unpack those laws even more with other laws. And we can kind of think of that as an unfolding. So the law doesn't save us. That's not what we're saying. It's not salvation by works. But once the gospel comes in, Holy Spirit changes our hearts. We're baptized into, into the body of Christ. And then it's like, okay, now how do I live? The law helps to shape our soul. It helps to train us is what Paul calls it. It's a teacher and it teaches us how to treat each other. Justice is really just part of that. It's an expression of how we love and treat others. So this is the foundational framework. So now we're going to build on this. Let's turn the pages back a little bit in Matthew's gospel. And look at a couple more passages. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 13. Jesus gives two very important parables that explain the kingdom of God. This is the first one we're going to talk about is the mustard seed. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which took, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all the seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and it becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. This is such a powerful picture of how the gospel goes out. I have a little, uh, I have a little picture here of the mustard seed and you can see that it starts out small. It's very small. And here he's got it on the tip of his finger and here's a tree that it blossoms into what we are supposed to get from this parable. The way you interpret parables is what is the big idea? Well, the big idea of the mustard seed parable is that it's something, the, the gospel goes out, it starts out small, and it has a big result, okay? It, it has a big outcome. 
Well, if we just think about it a minute, Jesus started out with 10, 10 apostles. On Pentecost, there was 120 people in the upper room. By the end of Pentecost, there were 3,000 converts. Another day, there were several thousand more converts. By the end of the book of Acts, the gospel has reached Rome, the very capital of the Roman Empire. And today, we see that big result, that big mustard tree, and that the gospel has gone out to the ends of the earth. We can go literally nearly everywhere on the planet Earth and find Christians. And we are so grateful for those missionaries who go out and are still going out to dark corners to bring the gospel even to even more people in their language. But the gospel has gone out and there's been a big result. I mean, imagine this. Okay. So in the book of Acts, everything is against them. These people have no power. They're not elected to office. Everything's stacked against them. The religious establishment is against them. The political government is against them. But the gospel triumphs. The Holy Spirit goes out and people get born again. Hearts and minds are changed and transformed. And there is a big result. And then those people have a multiplying effect of having children, discipling them or preaching the gospel, bringing more people in. Okay. Then Jesus has another parable right after the mustard seed parable with a very similar idea. It says, he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now, for those of you out there who have ever used yeast and you put, you, you knead all the bread and you put it all together and you put it in a bowl. And then you set it there for a period of time, a few hours, for a little amount of, of flour, and it doubles in size. It gets really puffy, right? Well, this parable talks about 60 pounds of flour. This is a big, this is a big loaf of bread. And that yeast is going to take time to get populated all throughout the dough, okay? And so this is the word picture that Jesus wants us to think of about the transforming effect of the gospel is that it takes time. It, it, it penetrates and it changes and it transforms the dough and it brings, you know, those, those yeast brings the properties and it has a transforming effect. These are two very interesting word pictures that Jesus wants us to associate with the Great Commission and what it looks like to have the gospel goes out, to go out. We're going to turn back in Matthew's gospel a few more pages to the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to look at one more word picture in Matthew chapter 6. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but it's thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. So here we have two more word pictures, salt and light. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Good works. What are those good works? It's God's moral law. That's what the good works are. Those are the things that we are supposed to do. Those are the things that are repeated in the New Testament um, and, and given to God's people in the Old Testament. And now they're, they're, they're transported into the New Covenant for people in all nations and all cultures to do. So how do I bring all of these scriptures together in order to help us answer our big question? Uh, how do Christians change large-scale systems and structures? Well, I have this handy-dandy little chart here Bob's going to put up. So it starts with us. It starts with you. It starts with you right now, the person who is watching this stream. Learn and teach God's law to yourself and to your family. That's where it starts. It starts with each one of us learning God's word, studying God's word. What does God tell me to do? How does he tell me to live? Then leading your family to love God and love your neighbor 
according to God's moral law. So you're, you're teaching yourself and you're teaching your family. And then you're also preaching the gospel to the nations and planting churches. So maybe that, you know, right now things are crazy. You know, maybe you're feeling like you don't even have a church. Maybe you start a home fellowship with two or three other families and, and you start discipling your kids and you start, you start small. That's okay. But that's how the gospel multiplies. We don't wait for pastors to do all the heavy lifting when it comes to evangelism and preaching the gospel. The Holy Spirit has given us all spiritual gifts to preach the gospel. It is the, it is the job of every Christian to preach the gospel. And so that's what we do. We teach, we teach ourselves, we teach our children, we, we plant churches, we preach the gospel. Okay, next slide. Then we disciple Christian families to obey God's law over multiple generations. This is the multiplying effect. This is the mustard seed effect of starting small, getting big. It's the yeast effect, getting in the lump of dough and helping it rise. Our tendency as Americans is to think so in the short term. You know, how do I elect the politician in the office to change everything right away? God's plan is different than that. That's not how the kingdom works. The kingdom works over multiple generations. The kingdom is a long vision. It is a long strategy. It's the long game. And so that's what we do by planning the churches. We're, we're discipling, helping to disciple those families so that those children can be raised and they can disciple their children. So when you're discipling, your children right now, you're also teaching them how to disciple their children someday. So if you want your grandchildren to be raised in a Christian home and, and if you want them to be discipled by discipling your kids, you're not only teaching them the information about the faith, you're giving them an example of how to disciple your grandchildren. This is the multi-generational effect of the gospel. Next is notice the multiplying effect of the gospel and families and churches and communities all obeying God's law. So as that mustard seed grows, more and more families get converted to Christianity, more and more churches get established, more and more generations get discipled, and then communities start changing because there's healthy churches in that community. And then as you get more and more people who are obeying God, then cultures start changing. People have different sensibilities. They don't want to do the same things that they used to do before. That is a major factor in changing societies. Now, sometimes we pray <clears throat> for big moves to end unjust cultural practices. Um, Sometimes big moves happen, and we're going to talk about a couple of examples of that at the end of the stream. But I just want to give you the big picture of kind of that mustard seed approach for how to change societies. What is God's plan? Now, I think a good way to illustrate the, the principles of what I'm trying to say here is to look at a couple of biblical examples. So we're going to look at two biblical examples of justice. We're going to look at an Old Testament and a New Testament example, Boaz and Philemon. So let's look at those really quick. First is Boaz. Now, when the book of Ruth uh, seems to be very in vogue right now to teach in the book of Ruth and like to talk about marginalized people and kind of reinterpret the whole thing through a social justice lens, I kind of have a different angle on the, the book of Ruth. Um, when I look at Boaz, what I see is a wealthy landowner who was had his soul shaped and informed by God's law. He was a righteous man. Well, what does it mean to be a righteous man? It means that he knows what God's law says and he knows how to live it out. So one of the examples we see of that is that he keeps the edges of his field uncut or unharvested so the poor can come and glean. And one of those people is Ruth. Well, that's just, he's just obeying the law. He's just obeying 
the instruction in Leviticus 23. He's not doing anything like super spectacular or unusual. He's just a Bible man. He read the Bible and then he did the Bible. That's what Boaz is doing. Um, he makes a comment. There's a comment preserved there to protect Ruth from the other men. All he's doing there is just looking out for her as in as a vulnerable person. Um, and that just comes, again, straight out of the law that, that we want to, um, you know, rape is against God's law. And so Boaz is just acting as a protector for Ruth. He's just a man who's had his soul shaped by the moral law. He read the Bible. He he does the Bible. It, it's very simple. Um, he acts as Ruth's kinsman redeemer. Well, where does he get such an idea? Well, right out of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, so when I see Boaz, I see him as a man who knows how to obey God. He has read the scriptures and he knows how to live out the principles of the scripture. So let's look at a second example here is Philemon. Philemon is from the New Testament. Now, Philemon, is a, he was a slave owner, so that makes me think he was probably wealthy. Um, not necessarily, because about two-thirds of the ancient world were slaves, and not everybody who had slaves was totally wealthy. So it's a little bit of an, of an assumption, but I think it's a, it's a fair assumption. And Paul writes to Philemon and encourages him to treat Onesimus as a brother and with the same honor he would give Paul as an apostle. Now, I do think it's interesting that Onesimus, according to church history, goes on to become a leader in the church. I believe he goes on to become a bishop. Um, and so what we see in this very short but interesting book of Philemon is, I think, the outline of what God's plan is for how to change society. God's plan, there's no instruction there of, of like tearing down the systemic injustice of slavery. And this bothers some people. But I think that what we see in the book of Philemon is God's plan. God's plan is that when the gospel goes out, it changes our relationships with, with each other. I no longer regard Onesimus according to his station. I regard him first as a brother. I regard him with the same honor that I would regard an apostle. Well, if I start doing that and I, I'm sitting in my church and, and I'm, I'm sitting next to a Jew and a poor person and a Roman guard and a wealthy woman from the house of Caesar, and we're all kind of sitting there together, what I'm supposed to think is that God is, is creating an invisible new nation from among all of these people groups. And this, in this invisible new nation, people regard each other as brothers and sisters first. Well, that's going to change how I treat that person. I'm, I'm not going to just treat them as a slave or treat them as, as the world tells me I ought to treat them with the social conventions. It starts changing my heart. It starts changing my mind. I start thinking about them differently. This is God's plan for how to change society. It is an inside-out plan. It doesn't go first for external structures. It doesn't go first for changing political laws. It goes first for changing human hearts and then looking at a cumulative effect over multiple generations for and, and through discipleship of how we will change societies. But in the meantime, we will see Christianity go forward. In the, in the meantime, we will see the gospel be preached even under horrible circumstances. This is how God's kingdom works and how it has historically worked. What we live in in America is the anomaly. In the West, it is the anomaly in history. The norm is that Christians 
are living in a situation of being a minority and sometimes even being a persecuted minority, being second-class citizens. That is more of the norm. What we have experienced in our country and in the West is the aberration. <laughs> it, is, it is more of the unusual. All right, those were my two kind of biblical examples. Now I want to give two historical examples. Am I giving two? One historical example and one contemporary example. So first, my historical example is William Wilberforce. So William Wilberforce was a British politician. He was a member of parliament. And, you know, he was raised in sort of cultural Christianity at that time. And, but he has a radical encounter with Jesus and becomes totally converted in his early 20s. And he comes from a very wealthy family. And he starts thinking about how can I use my position in politics to really affect change. And if you recall earlier that I said, sometimes we pray for big moves. They're rare, but we pray for big moves where an unjust system can be quickly dismantled. And in the case of William Wilberforce, he worked for many years to try to, in various ways, Um, and slavery, and end the transatlantic slave trade. Now, why did he do this? Well, because he understood that all humans have essential human dignity because they are created in the image of God. That theology informed what became a public policy and a law. But that is rare. It is very rare. And in the case of William Wilberforce, toward the very end of his life, he was able to get a law passed in the British Parliament to end the transatlantic slave trade. And this was an amazing and miraculous move. Um, uh, And it's a great example of how a system, an evil system, can get changed and how one person really can sometimes make a difference. But that's on the rare side. Those kind of moments don't happen every day. So let me give you one more example of how the gospel goes out, this multiplying effect, this mustard seed effect. And I'm going to use, I like to use the example of Agape International Ministries. Now we did a whole podcast with them about a year ago. So I encourage you to go check that out on their work on human trafficking in Cambodia. So their model was that they had, missionaries go to a particular city in Cambodia that was a tourist destination for sex trafficking, sex tourism. And you could go there with the expectation of purchasing a child and and to use a child either um, in a sexual way. And, People just knew, you know, that if an American or a Westerner came to that city, this is why they were coming. They were coming for sex tourism. So some missionaries go, they set up house. What do they do first? Well, they set up a church and they start preaching the gospel. But their radical message is that all humans are created in the image of God. So they have dignity and value and worth. They try to persuade parents Please don't sell your children into sex slavery. Please don't do that. Um, They start trying to get people out of the sex trafficking business. Well, how do they do that? They teach them a trade. They set up shop. They teach them to sew. They have a whole clothing line there. They sell clothes. And so their message of the gospel was that by preaching the gospel, And by preaching God's creation identity for people, this is a highly culturally disruptive message. You could argue it's a culturally destructive message because they're telling the people that their cultural value of selling their children is morally wrong. And they're defining, they're taking God's standard of justice into a culture that says, this is what justice is. Justice is I can get more money for to sell my boy child than I can a girl child. 
and that will help my family. Okay, so when that Christian message comes in, it's totally countercultural, it's counterintuitive to everything that they've been taught. And so the gospel is needed then in order to change minds and hearts and transform things. But at the same time, they're building new systems, they're building schools, they're building medical facilities, they're building trade um, uh, places where people can earn a trade. And they even opened a gym to try to help bring the gospel to the, the pimps who sell the children. And the gospel was for them too. And so by doing that, they're bringing the mustard seed, a small beginning with a big result. And in fact, they've had such an impact now that this city is no longer a big tourist stop for sex tourism. In fact, people know that's not really where you can go anymore. The government in Cambodia has recognized the good effect of Christianity and they see this might be a better way to live. And so this is, I hope that you can see the multiplying effect that the gospel can have, but only when we are very clear about what the the law is, how God um, wants us to treat each other. And we don't just, mirror the culture let us go to the comments yes Kristen, um you're right there with me paul's message was destructive to idol maker prophets in the book of acts paul goes to the book of ephesus or to the city of ephesus and he starts preaching the gospel well immediately they they know wait a minute if people get converted to this message What's going to happen to all of us who are making a living making the idols of Artemis that people have in their homes? Wait a minute. This is not only undermining our economic structure. This is undermining our religious system and our religious values. The temple of Artemis was one of the great wonders of the ancient world, and it was there in Ephesus. And Paul is confronting that directly. And this is a potentially culturally disruptive message. And if the gospel is preached correctly, then it ought to be a critique on every culture, every country, every society. Now, I said earlier that, and I want to just make sure that I restate this very critical point, that large-scale changes are rare. Abolishing the transatlantic slave trade, rare. Passing the Civil Rights Act, rare. Again, these are like once-in-a-lifetime events. Why? Well, (laughs) because sinners like to collude in their sin, and they like to use corrupt systems or set up corrupt systems to keep corrupt people in power. This is what we do. We are sinners. And when that's the case, Christians ought, to speak out prophetically against the corruption. John the Baptist didn't shy away from confronting King Herod about his adultery. He, he didn't say, well, you know, King, you do you. You know, that's not, that's not how it was. It was God's standard preached clearly into uh, and against the, the rulers of, of the time because the, the king that is above Herod is King Jesus. Okay. So, I would argue that every culture actually needs Christian leaders to be a powerful and prophetic voice against evil. Otherwise, evil goes unchallenged. And when Christians just sort of go with the flow of culture and culture's version of justice, horrible things happen. Horrible things like scientific racism and eugenics. A hundred years ago, it was quite in vogue to think that people with darker skin were less intelligent, less capable, um, and morally defective than people with lighter skin. And there were all kinds of things done in the name of science to eliminate darker skinned people, 
to marginalize them, to push them to the side because they were looked upon as being defective. And many, many Christians went along with this. They simply parroted the world's view of justice when it came, and they just went with the flow when it came to the, this whole idea of dark-skinned people being less capable than light-skinned people. And I'm not talking about it was just a bunch of conservative Christians. It was the progressive Christians, too. There was a similar dynamic in play in um, Nazi Germany. that the, the church, the established church, just kind of went along with the notions of justice that were put forth by the Nazi Germany. The church lost its prophetic voice and adopted the version of justice that was being used by the culture. It was a mess. Millions of people died. Christians must tether themselves to a biblical standard of justice. We must be constantly studying the scriptures to see if what we are saying is reflects God's standard of justice. And that is a continual conversation, and nobody's perfect at that. I think that looking in history and what Christians have historically done, that's helpful. Um, but I think that we have to be very careful in interpreting the scriptures and bringing those things to bear on the culture. We don't look to the culture first and then sprinkle some Bible verses on that. That's not how we do this, okay? Now, I'd like to close out this series by addressing three of the most common objections that I hear from uh, conservative Christians when it comes to justice. Three of the most common objections. Well, objection number one is this. Yeah, but Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. This verse... (laughs) I had a nickel for every time this verse is quoted in a conversation about justice and why we don't really need to pay attention to it, why we don't really need to have a conversation about justice. I would be a very rich woman (laughs) Um, all the time. This is the verse. And my response to that is, yes, that's true. But do you know the the context of this statement? Okay. Context is, is important. That's where we get meaning from things. So, um, does this passage mean that we can just ignore the unjust exploitation of others? Is that what Jesus is saying? So let's look at it really quick. Uh, Matthew 26. It's right before Jesus goes to the cross. So Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. She poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been used, could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Someone was, I don't know, a social justice warrior there. Uh, But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will will not always have me. In pouring this anointing, This ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So what's the context here of Jesus's statement? She's preparing him for burial. It's a a once in a lifetime opportunity where she does something, this woman does something as a symbol for Jesus's impending death right before he goes to the cross. Well, can we extrapolate from that passage that we can just ignore all of the unjust exploitation of others? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. He's making a very simple point about this one woman in this one situation with doing something that is highly symbolic and pointing forward to his death. But this is not the get out of jail free card where we can just have absolute apathy about people around us and who are suffering from unjust, unjust exploitation that this, this verse cannot do that. It cannot do all of that heavy lifting. Now will poverty be part of our existence until Jesus comes? Probably, probably, but I do think it's interesting and I don't have this verse. It's just kind of coming to me right now. 
But it is interesting to me that under the Mosaic law, the idea was that there would be no poor among them. That if everyone righteously obeyed God's laws, there would be no poor. The problem is, is that we live with a lot of wickedness, a lot of wickedness. And so, yeah, I think that it is quite likely the poor will always be with us. But that just means that we as Christians have to pay attention, figure out what God's, what God's word says. How do we deal with the poor? How do we help them according to God's justice standards, not according to the culture? And, um, you know, how do we do that? But we don't get the, the option of just saying, quoting this one Bible verse and saying, okay, therefore, what? I don't, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to care. Okay, objection number two. Yeah, but we will never get rid of all injustice because, you know, sin. Yeah, I hear this one all the time, and I kind of just alluded to that. And my response to that is, yes, that's true. Sin will be with us until Jesus returns. But what do we do in the meantime? (laughs) What does Jesus want his people to do when we see clear examples of suffering that we have the power to help decrease? To me, that is the critical question. It's not enough just to say, oh, yeah, I don't need to worry about helping the poor because, you know, it'll always be here because sin. That's not helpful. (laughs) That's not helpful. So in Luke chapter 16, Jesus shares this story about the rich man. And the rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen feasted sumptuously every day. So we're supposed to get a picture that this man is like, he, he's, he's so rich. He's filthy rich. You ever heard that saying? He's filthy rich. He's so, he has so much money. He doesn't even know how much money he has. Okay. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. And what I want you to notice here is at his gate. In other words, he had to walk over this man every single day. This wasn't some man just far away that he never saw at his gate laid a man who was covered with sores. Imagine the suffering who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. He just wanted the scraps. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. I noticed the answer here. It's so interesting. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they got the Bible. They need to read their Bible. They know what to do. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes to them from the dead, no, send them a miracle, then they'll repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So when we think about justice, it is not going to get us off the hook just to say, we don't need to talk about justice because sin. Sin's always going to be here. There's always going to be unjust systems. You know, we're just sort of powerless. No, the problem with Lazarus and the rich man is that the rich man stepped over Lazarus every day. He could have done something, but he didn't. That's the problem. The problem was that there was something in the rich man's power that he could have done to help decrease the suffering of Lazarus. But he didn't do it. That's a problem. So yes, is the world full of sin? Yes. Is the world full of injustices? Yes. But Jesus wants us to concern ourselves with the person in front of us, the person where we can 
make a difference. The per- we don't have to fix all the world's problems, but we do have to pay attention to the people and the suffering and the problems that God puts right in front of us. The third objection that I hear when talking about justice with conservative Christians is, I'm just praying Jesus comes back soon. I hear some version of this all the time on social media. And, you know, oh, the country is bad. We're in a bad way. Bad things are happening. I'm just praying that we're going to be out of here soon. The rapture is happening soon, this kind of thing. My answer to this is no matter what your view is of the end, like the rapture, pre-rapture, post-rapture, any no rapture, you know, any of those, we don't get the opportunity to just give up being salt and light now. Okay. Even if you think the world is going to get worse and worse, or even if you think you're a post-millennialist and you think the gospel will eventually triumph, I don't care what your position is. Your obligation is Matthew 6 right now. Salt and light. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. The Great Commission right now. So being in a posture of I'm just praying that Jesus comes back soon misses out on the duty that we have to be salt and light wherever we are. And I think that Christians in the persecuted countries understand this much better because they haven't been spoiled by the ease that we have. So when we think about the Great Commission, when we think about Matthew 28, and we think about going out into all the world and making disciples of all nations, I want you to think about it as the end goal is 1 Corinthians 15, that we are bringing all things under the feet of Jesus, that he will rule and reign, as it says in Matthew 28, all authority under heaven has been given to him. And now in light of the resurrection, we are looking for that time when he puts everything, even the the last death, the last enemy of death is destroyed and put under his feet. But until that time, until he comes again, we have that responsibility to partner with Jesus as he's ruling and reigning, as he's putting everything under his feet, um, that we preach the gospel and we live out his uh, moral law and we look to make that cumulative effect. What I want you to know is, you know, when I hear Christians on social media especially conservative Christians. I'm speaking right now to conservative Christians mostly because that's who watches this channel. Um, when we give these kinds of responses and, and we say these kinds of things of like, well, the poor will always have among us or there'll always be sin or um, that, uh, that I'm just praying for Jesus to come soon. What this sounds like people who are enduring real suffering is that we just don't care that we are the most callous, uncaring, unfeeling people. And this is why justice oriented people, people that God has created to have a justice orientation. This is why many of them vote for liberal progressive policies is because often conservative Christians, we just sound very heartless and, and can we just be honest, like we are not good with implementing a lot of policies based on our worldview. And so I think we have to have an appreciation for the fact that there is a, you don't have to put that slide up, Bob, but th- there's a, there's a reputation that biblically faithful Christians have that we're so busy arguing about justice instead of actually doing justice and living justly, living righteously, that it's it's not appealing to people. They don't want to be in a conversation and they don't really take us seriously. And Monique and I see this a lot in ministry. And so I think, I hope that people will rethink those knee-jerk reactions 
and not give those kinds of responses, but rather begin to think about how can I study God's word more, understand what God's moral law is more, and how can I allow that to begin to shape my soul so that I can walk more righteously. I can become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. So I want to help us get free from the justice versus the gospel trap. I hope I've accomplished that in this series. Um, We don't want to say things like we just need to preach the gospel. And we don't want to say things like social justice is the gospel. This is the, this is the, the trap that so many Christians are in. Um, they, they, they fall into one of these two camps. Rather, what we want to do is preach the gospel and teach people to live according to God's justice standards. That's what we want to do. Teach our children, teach our friends, our small group. This is what we want to be up to. The gospel comes in and it changes hearts. The Holy Spirit lives in me. It changes my desires. I want to live righteously. How do I then live? That's where God's moral law comes in and teaches me how to live a righteous and just life. Well, I hope you have found this teaching series helpful. Um, As I close out, I want to thank all of you who have stepped up to support me as I've transitioned out of my full-time job by becoming a monthly partner. Because of you, I get to do things like this. It's so exciting. I hope that you're growing in your faith. I love receiving your messages when you find something helpful. I love developing teaching series, online courses, and all of that. So thank you to each and every one of my monthly partners. And if the Lord leads you, please consider partnering with me at, as well. You can go to the Center for Biblical Unity dot com slash donate and just select my salary there and um, you can help support me on a monthly basis again please share this series um, with your pastors your leaders maybe even like your christian school principal people of influence that you think could benefit from this series i'll be back in two weeks lord willing with a discussion about ex-gay ministries. It's been something I've been researching for quite a while. I want to look at the various approaches because it's becoming more and more clear to me that not all ex-gay ministries use the same uh, theology. They don't all look at the issues the same way. And so as we are um, recommending resources on social media and that kind of thing, I want to help equip you to understand kind of the major buckets and major approaches that different ex-game ministries use. I think that it'll be of some help to people. So again, that stream will be in two weeks. May God bless you and good night. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.